The Old Testament reading today will come from 2 Kings 5, 1 through 14. 2 Kings 5, 1 through 14. The New Testament reading will be Luke 7, 1 through 10. That will be our sermon text. Uh, the connection between these two passages uh, should be clear. Uh, in 2 Kings 5, 1 through 14, we read of the healing of a man named Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria, an enemy of Israel. And when we go to Luke 7, we will read of a kind deed that Christ did for a Roman centurion to heal his servant. And so, uh, there is indeed a connection between these two texts that we should notice. While you're turning to the passages, I wanted to remind you of our catechism question for the week. What is baptism? Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ to be unto the party, a bap- party baptized, a sign of his fellowship with him and his death, burial, and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of his giving up himself unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. That is a long answer, isn't it, uh, to the question, what is baptism? But I wanted to give a brief reminder of the fact that we are looking at these catechism questions week after week. Parents, I encourage you to go over these truths with your children in the home. Uh, This would be an especially important one to go over with those who have not yet been baptized Lord willing, in preparation for that someday. And also, I wanted to remind you that I'll be preaching on that principle in our second service. Uh, So, with that reminder out of the way, let's go now to the reading of God's most holy word, 2 Kings 5, 1-14. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter... He tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel." So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, 
It is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, and he and all his company. And he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please, let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. Let us now turn our attention to the New Testament reading, Luke 7, 1 through 10. After he, that is Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes. And to my servant, Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. As we consider this story of the healing of a Roman centurion's servant, I think we should look back in Luke's gospel a bit and also forward. If we look ahead to Luke 7.18, we see that John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus to confirm that he is indeed the Messiah. Evidently, John the Baptist was struggling in some ways. We know that he was imprisoned. And he sends messengers to Jesus. Are you really the one, or should we look for another? And the answer that Jesus gives is found in Luke 7, 22 and 23. He answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So, given where Luke goes in his gospel, uh, given that he eventually tells us of the doubt of John the Baptist and of the confirmation, the word of confirmation that is sent to him, I think it is right for us to see this story about the miraculous healing of a Roman centurion's servant as yet another sign 
that Jesus is the Messiah. He performed this miracle and many others in order to demonstrate that He was the Lord's Messiah, just as He claimed. I think it is also interesting to look back in Luke's Gospel a bit, to remember the things that Jesus said in His Sermon on the Plain, which we have been considering for the last few weeks. Remember, Jesus commanded His followers in that sermon to love their enemies, to judge and condemn not, but rather to forgive and to give generously, expecting nothing in return. Jesus, in that sermon, rebuked the self-righteous and commended those who had a humble and lowly disposition. Uh, There was a lot more said in that sermon, but I wish to remind you of these themes that ran throughout. And I remind you of these themes because it seems to me that this Roman centurion is held before us. He's held out as a kind of model for the way of life that Jesus called His disciples to follow. In fact, the text says that Jesus marveled at the faith of this man and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So, Jesus Himself holds this man forth as as a model for us, a model of, of true and sincere and deep faith. This Roman soldier possessed great faith, to believe that Christ could say a word and his servant would be healed, but he also possessed many of the qualities that Jesus commanded in his Sermon on the Plain. He, we will learn, was a humble, caring, and generous man who was even kind to those who were below him and those who were considered to be his enemies according to the world's way of seeing things. This Roman centurion not only possessed great faith that Jesus was able to heal by just speaking a word, but also he demonstrated by his way of life that he was a man of deep and profound faith. So let us walk through this text together today. In verse 1 we read, After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a small town in the region of Galilee, located on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, This is all far above Jerusalem to the north. Uh, This small town functioned as a home base for Jesus during his earthly ministry, especially early on. We know that many miracles were performed there in that place. There's not much to say about this town called Capernaum. Uh, Perhaps the most important observation to make about this city is that it was small, insignificant, and off the beaten path, and yet this is where Jesus chose to to do much of His uh, early ministry. This is where He performed many of His miracles, and this fits with Jesus' overall way of life. He came in a humble way. He was poor and despised by men, and here uh, the city of Capernaum is used, and it was an off-the-beaten-path kind of town. In verse 2 we read, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death who was highly valued by him. A, A centurion was a captain in the Roman army, a commander of a hundred soldiers. So, I wonder if you can picture him. I picture a very strong man, a very competent man. He was a man of authority. He was a man of war, uh, this Roman centurion was. Indeed, he, I'm sure, saw much conflict. He was a man of war. But we are told 
that he had a servant who was highly valued by him. That is how the ESV translates the Greek. The NASB says that the servant was highly regarded by him. The King James Version says that the servant was dear unto him. And I do appreciate those translations a little more, I think, for they better highlight the kindness of this centurion. This centurion did not only care for his servant because he was of value to him. Do you see how that could be misunderstood? You know, um, he did not care for the person, only uh, at the loss he would experience if this man were to die because the servant was valuable to him. I do not think that is really the meaning. This story shows us that this servant was in fact dear to the centurion, highly regarded by him, which is why he showed him such kindness, you see. And indeed, that is one of the meanings of the Greek term that is by the ESV translated as valued. Before we move on, brothers and sisters, I think we should remember the political situation of the Jews in those days. Israel was in these days, and for many years before this, Uh, occupied by the Romans. The Jews were not free, but were in these days subject to this foreign power. The Romans were viewed by the Jews as enemies and oppressors, therefore, and the Romans were very strong. This was the political situation into which our Lord and Savior was born. He was born a Jew. He was born into a nation that had been overtaken by another. He was born into a situation where, politically speaking, uh, there were others over him who did oppress him as a Jewish man. He did not live in a free democracy, as we do, but was a member of an occupied and oppressed people. And I think that Christians, especially Christians in America today, would do well to remember this. We should remember that Jesus, His apostles, and the early church lived within political systems very different from ours. They were not free. In fact, they were at certain times and in certain regions persecuted harshly by those with power. I say we would do well to remember this fact and to pay careful attention to the way in which Christ and His followers live so that we might obey their teaching and follow their example. Also, it is important for us to see this so that we might know that that Christians and the Christian faith can indeed flourish in difficult political environments where there is no freedom but oppression instead. We must remember, though, that the Jews and the Romans were at enmity with one another. The Jews considered the Romans to be their enemies, their oppressors, and many looked upon them with disdain, calling them even dogs. In verse 3 we read, When the centurion heard about Jesus... He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they, the Jews, pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He, this Roman centurion, is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. I want you to notice three things about verses 3 through 5, which I have just read. One, Notice that the centurion was aware of Jesus. He must have heard of Jesus' teaching and of the miraculous deeds that he was performing. 
And he probably heard of Jesus from the Jews who were living in Capernaum, where he served. That the centurion was aware of Jesus tells us something about Jesus, that that, that word was spreading fast concerning him. But this also tells us something about the centurion. This man was not living in isolation from the Jewish population, but was engaged in religious matters even. He was engaged, he was dialoguing with the Jews who lived around him in this small town where he served. He must have been somewhat interested in the Jewish religion and in the Old Testament scriptures, for news of Jesus was brought to his ears somehow. Uh, These Jewish friends of his brought news of Jesus to his ears. Two, notice the effort made by the centurion to care for his servant. He sent elders of the Jews to Jesus asking him to come and to heal his servant. This centurion was a kind man, therefore. He cared even for those who were far beneath him in status. And we might ask, where did this kindness come from? Uh, Indeed, we must confess that it was not common in these days for someone like this Roman centurion to to care at all for, for a little servant. Uh, someone as lowly as this servant, but this man did care. Where did this kindness come from? Well, it may be that God, by His common grace and through the light of nature, granted this man a merciful and kind disposition. This can and does happen. There are non-believers who, by God's common grace, do possess an unusual degree of, of kindness. But it seems as if the Lord was doing something more in this centurion. As the story progresses, it becomes clear that this man was touched by the special and saving grace of God. And this is why he had such love for this servant of his. Three, I want you to notice the respect that the Jews had for this man, despite the fact that he was a Roman centurion with authority over them. When the Jews came to Jesus, the text says that they pleaded with him earnestly. So, these Jews did not go to Jesus out of mere duty or obligation because a man, a powerful man with a sword, told them to go. They did not come and merely report to, this, to Jesus what the, the centurion told them they had to report. But instead, they went and they actually pleaded with Jesus earnestly. Their, their hearts were in it. In other words... They did not go to Jesus because it was their duty. They did not go because they were threatened with the sword. The elders of the Jews went to Jesus with love and respect for this centurion in their hearts. And when they got there, they pleaded with Jesus earnestly, which means that they were eagerly pleading with him. And look at what they said. He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. The Greek word translated as nation is ethnos. That might sound familiar to you. Uh, Nation is a fine translation of this word, but you should know that the word carries the meaning of a body of persons united by kinship, culture, and common traditions. So the point that I am here making is this. This Roman centurion loved the Jewish people. He loved their culture. He loved even their customs. And evidently he loved their religion too, for the Jews pleaded with Jesus saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. He loves our nation and he is the one who built our synagogue for us. A synagogue is a church building or a meeting house. So it appears that this Roman centurion, being a man of means, was personally interested in the Jewish religion, even to the point of building the Jews in Capernaum 
their meeting house, their church building, we might say. In verses 6 through 8, we read, And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. I want you to notice three things about these verses that I have just read, verses 6 through 8. One, and this is perhaps a minor observation, but I appreciate it. The centurion here, we are told, had friends. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, etc., etc. Not only did the Jews love and honor this man, he had other friends too who were willing to go to Jesus on his behalf. And I make this simple observation uh, to make a connection with something that Jesus said in his sermon on the plain. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. We studied that text some time ago. But here I think we see that this centurion... Because he was a kind and generous man to others, he had many around him who were kind and generous in return. He was giving, he was generous, he was kind, and even the Jews who would have been considered his political enemies loved this man. They honored him greatly, they saw him as a worthy man, and he had other friends too that he could send, not merely soldiers who were beneath him bound by duty, but friends who would be willing to go to Jesus and to deliver this message to him. He was kind and generous, and what came back to him? Others were kind and generous with him in return. They loved him and saw him as a man worthy of honor. And so it goes in life. Here is the principle that Jesus presented in his Sermon on the Plain, lived out. Two, I want you to notice the humility, the great humility of this centurion. In fact, when I picture a Roman centurion, I picture a man of great pride, of great arrogance perhaps, but it was not so with this one. The Jews told us, or told Jesus, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Do you remember those words of theirs? He is worthy for have, to have you do this for him because he loves our nation. He built us our synagogue. But how did the centurion regard himself? He sent his friends to Jesus saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. This humble spirit of the centurion is to be contrasted with the arrogant pride and self-righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees walked around with their noses in the air, and they looked down upon Jesus and His disciples condemningly. They judged them harshly. We have learned about this in Luke's Gospel already. 
So here, the Jews, the the religious elite of the Jews, the ones who you would expect to have a humility before God and man, were filled with great pride. But in contrast to this, we are introduced to this Roman centurion. You would expect this one to be puffed up with arrogance and pride, given the power he possessed in the world. And yet he has this humble disposition before God and man. He says to Jesus, I am not worthy. I did not presume to come to you, for I am not worthy. And he did not have a private conversation with Jesus about this, between him and Jesus alone, but he made it known to others too. He told his friends to bring this word to Jesus. I think we are to notice this humility. Evidently, this Roman centurion understood and lived by the ethical teachings of Jesus, though he likely did not hear the sermon that Jesus delivered on the plain. There on the plain, Jesus said, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. And here I am making the simple observation that this Roman centurion knew that he was a sinner. He was aware of the specks and logs in his eye, and he was not concerned to judge others as the scribes and Pharisees were. He saw himself as unworthy to be in the presence of Jesus. And that leads us to the third observation about verses 6 through 8. This Roman centurion possessed a remarkable understanding of who Jesus was. He knew that Jesus was more than a mere man. That is clear from everything that is said here. One, he clearly understood that Christ was holy and great. This is clear from his statement, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. this, This was a powerful man who said this. This was a man who was used to being in the presence of men more powerful than him. He speaks of those more powerful for him. He talked about how he was under authority and how he had authority over others. So he had no problem standing before great and mighty men, fellow Roman soldiers, those who were above him. But when it came to Jesus, he said, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. So he understood that Jesus was a great man, a mighty man, a holy man, more than a mere man. Two, He understood that Jesus possessed great authority. When he articulated his confidence that Christ could heal his servant from a distance, he said, For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to the one, Go, and he goes, etc., etc. He is saying to Jesus, I understand that you possess great authority, and that you are able to act even from a distance. You are able, by your word, to declare that a sickness is to leave my servant, and the sickness will leave. So think of it. This man knew that Jesus had authority not only over other men, his disciples, but had authority over sickness and death itself. This is truly a a great understanding that uh, this centurion had concerning the identity of Jesus. Three, Some students of the Bible have noted that the centurion understood that Jesus was the Word of God incarnate. He objected to Jesus coming under his roof and he said, But say the word and let my servant be healed. Now, God alone has the power 
to speak things into reality. In the beginning, the Lord created the heavens and earth by the word of His power. The repeated refrain of Genesis 1 is, And God said, and God said, and so it was. And when we come to the New Testament, it is made clear that God the Father created the world through the Son, or Word, and by the Spirit. When the centurion requested that Jesus merely say the Word to heal his servant, he expressed the belief that Jesus possessed the very power and authority of God. To bring things into existence, to bring things into reality by the Word of His power. Indeed, we know that Christ was and is the Word the second subsistence of the triune God incarnate. You may see Genesis, uh, John chapter 1 for more about that. Truly, the, the, the faith of this Roman centurion was mar- marvelous. It was a marvelous faith that he possessed. Not only did he believe that Jesus could heal, but he, he demonstrated that he saw Jesus as a man holy and great. He saw Jesus as a man with great authority, authority even over sickness and death. In fact, He alludes to the fact that he understands that Jesus possesses the very power and authority of God to speak things into reality. Now, look with me at verses 9 through 10. Here we learn that Jesus noticed the marvelous faith of this Roman centurion. When Jesus heard these things, that is, the message that the friends of the centurion brought to him, when Jesus heard these things, He marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So the Lord did, in fact, heal the servant from a distance by the word of his power. When Luke reports to us that Jesus marveled at the centurion, we are to understand that Jesus marveled according to his human nature. The divine nature cannot marvel, properly speaking, for God is never surprised by anything. But Christ, in his humanity, did marvel over the great faith of this Roman centurion. And to fully appreciate the greatness of the faith of this man, we must recognize that it was a well-rounded and mature faith that he possessed. Yes, the centurion did believe that Jesus could heal, his servant from a distance. But this faith, notice, this faith that Jesus could heal from a distance by the word of his power was rooted in an understanding of who Jesus was. Stated differently, the Roman centurion believed that Jesus could heal from a distance and by his word because he knew that Jesus was no mere man but was, in fact, the Messiah, God with us. And more than this, The centurion's faith in the Messiah was shown to be true by his actions. He was a man known for his love and kindness. When Jesus commended this man for his remarkable faith, faith of a kind that Jesus had not found amongst the Jews, he was not merely considering his confidence that he could heal. I want you to notice that others demonstrated that kind of faith. Others demonstrated that they knew that Jesus had the ability to heal. Think, for example, of the men who lowered their paralyzed friend through the roof of the house, as reported in Luke 5, 17 and following. Those men knew that Jesus could heal, didn't they? And they went to great lengths to bring their paralyzed friend before him. They even dug a hole through the roof in the house that Jesus was sitting in. So they knew that Jesus could heal. 
But there's something more going on here in this Roman centurion that would lead Christ to say, I have not even seen faith like this amongst my kinsmen, the Jews. Jesus marveled at this faith. The centurion showed that his faith was very strong. Not only did he know that Jesus could heal, but he knew that he could heal because of who he was, no mere man, but the Messiah, the Holy One of God. His faith was shown to be great because of the fruit that it produced. He lived a life that was characterized by love and kindness and generosity. And I am here saying that when Jesus commended the man for his great faith and said that he had seen not faith like this amongst the Jews, he was considering the whole man, the Roman centurion who was living a life of faith marked by kindness and generosity. Jesus healed the servant. And he did this, one, to show mercy to the servant and to the centurion, two, to commend the faith of the centurion, and three, to demonstrate yet again that he was indeed the Lord's Messiah, the Word of God incarnate, just as he had claimed. I want to move this sermon to a conclusion by offering a few reflections on this text. First of all, when I read this story, of Jesus commending the faith of the Roman centurion and healing his servant, I immediately think of the mercy and grace that Jesus Christ would show to the Gentile nations under the new covenant. We should not forget, brothers and sisters, that under the old covenant, the saving grace of God was largely confined to Israel. For the promises concerning the Messiah were entrusted to them. We read from 1 Kings earlier, and in that passage we heard of an unusual occurrence where a commander in the Syrian army was healed of his leprosy and confessed that the God of Israel is the only true God on earth. Uh, What a marvelous story that was, but we are to see that that was very unusual. Under the Old Covenant, it was unusual for, for God to be believed upon and worshipped by Gentiles. But what happens when Christ comes into the world to accomplish our salvation? We see that He did not come for the Jews only, but He atoned for the sins of many from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Luke makes much of this in his gospel, and we cannot forget it. A major theme in Luke's gospel is that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, that He has come to expand His kingdom to the farthest reaches of the earth. And so as we consider this story about the Roman centurion. We are to keep that theme in mind. Jesus did something great for this Gentile, but it was a precursor of the greater things that he would do in the future as his kingdom expanded to the ends of the earth under the new covenant. Do not forget the words of that righteous and devout man named Simeon who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. When he saw the baby Jesus at the temple, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Isn't that interesting? The baby Jesus is said to be God's salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light For revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. So even in Jesus' infancy, it was declared by 
this man Simeon and others that this was the Messiah who would be the Savior of the world as it was revealed in the Old Testament. This was revealed in Jesus' early years, and Luke highlights this fact in various ways in his gospel, one of them being by telling the story of the faith of the Roman centurion, which we have considered today, a faith greater than any that Jesus had seen within Israel. And as we study the scriptures, brothers and sisters, we must keep this great transition ever in mind. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which was largely confined to Israel under the Old Covenant, has spread to the nations under the new. And you and I sitting here today are all beneficiaries of that wonderful truth. Let us then give thanks to God, therefore, for the salvation that He has brought even to us, and let us walk worthily. Secondly, as I consider the love and generosity that this Roman centurion showed to his servants, his friends, and the Jewish people over whom he ruled, I'm reminded that it is truly the poor in spirit and those who weep who are most blessed. Truly, those who forgive and give generously will be given unto. This centurion was blessed indeed. As has been noted, he had many friends. Even his political enemies loved and respected him. Why? Because he was a kind and generous man, a benevolent and just ruler. Most of us here in this room possess some kind of authority, don't we? Have you thought of this? We all, or at least most of us, possess some kind of authority. Some are elders and deacons in the church. Some are husbands. Some are fathers and mothers. And some have authority in the world in their places of employment. Whatever the authority may be, we should seek to emulate this man who was so kind to those who are under him. Indeed, to emulate this man is to emulate Christ, who, though he possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is gracious and kind to sinners like you and me. Three, as I consider this story of the Roman centurion and of his relationship to the Jews who knew him in Capernaum, I see a wonderful example of what it looks like to love your enemies. Again, politically speaking, culturally speaking, this man should have been at enmity with the Jewish people. He, like so many others, could have been heavy-handed and harsh with them. But we see that he rose above this and showed them love and kindness instead. Brothers and sisters, we as Christians are called to do the same. We are called to rise above the things that divide us politically and culturally, and to love even our enemies. I will say it again, because I think this point of application needs to be taken to heart, especially in our time. We as Christians are called to rise above the things that divide us politically and culturally, and to show love even to our enemies. And I want you to think of how powerful love is. Think of how it could break down barriers of all kinds. I think we see here in this story an example of how powerful love can be. Look at the bond that existed between this Roman centurion and these Jews who lived in Capernaum. What created that relationship except love, the presence of love, the decision of this Roman centurion to show love to those who were considered to be his enemies, politically and culturally speaking. Look at how the barriers 
melted away because of this. I think we must take note of it, brothers and sisters. It will accomplish nothing for us to show hate to those who differ from us on political issues or cultural issues. The differences might be real. <laughs> that, that, that might be so. And it may be that arguments need to be made when it comes to political matters. I am not forbidding that. But we must bring the love of Christ with us into our interaction with others in this world. Indeed, Christ has called His church to love. We are to love one another and we are to love even our enemies. Christ has made this clear. So if you are tempted to disregard this and say, Oh, this is nonsense. How could we do this? Or we're really not expected to do this. Are we go back to that sermon on the plain and see that it was a part of the most fundamental teaching that Jesus presented to His disciples. Do you want to be disciples of mine? Then I am calling you to love your enemies, He says. Here we see an example of how powerful that kind of love can be. And ironically, it is a Roman centurion who does it, and not one from amongst the Jews. This should strike us. It is meant to grab our attention for sure. For this story about the Roman centurion should encourage us to walk humbly before the Lord. I would imagine that many Roman centurions were filled with pride because of their power, but this man was powerful and yet humble, and so I, I, I want to say this man was most powerful. You know, He had power, he had might, but he was a humble man, and there is true strength in humility. When we are weak, we are strong, and this is especially true of those who run to God, to Christ, in their weakness. Men and women who think of themselves as strong will never run to Christ, But those who walk humbly before the Lord will turn to Christ and they will find true strength, mature strength in Him. Brothers and sisters, let us walk humbly before the Lord. Lastly, all of the good qualities that I have highlighted in this Roman centurion were His by the grace of God alone. This is always the case. Any goodness that is found in anyone is by God's grace. It is either by God's common grace or by His saving grace. But this man was given the gift of faith in Jesus the Messiah. He called out to Jesus in his need, and Jesus drew near to him. And I am saying that this is God's gift. Brothers and sisters, we never should forget this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James 1.17 Every good gift, every perfect gift is from God. And we must give thanks to God for every good thing that we enjoy in this life. We must give thanks to God that for every good quality that we possess and for every good quality that others possess around us. Above all, we must give thanks to God for the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. The greatest gift of all is Jesus and the ability to trust in Him to the salvation of our souls. For by grace you have been saved, friends, brothers and sisters. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Great God in heaven, we thank you for this marvelous story of this Roman centurion who possessed such marvelous faith. We do not know his name. It is not told to us in this passage. But we thank you for him, O God, for the faith that he possessed, for the way in which he called out to Jesus. We thank you that he is held forth as an example to us 
All of this is by your grace, O Lord. I pray that you would give us, O Lord, a love for the Holy Scriptures. And when we read stories like this, O God, may we meditate upon them. May we seek to do all that you command. And may we seek to emulate those who are held forth as examples to us. God, help us to be humble before you. Help us to be humble before others, kind and generous, loving, O Lord. May we be known for our love. God, I pray that the gospel would go forth for us, from us. And I pray that it would be adorned, that it would be made beautiful in part by the love that we have for one another and the love that we have even for the world. We pray these things in Christ's precious name and all of God's people say.